0: Welcome to this Respiratory Compromise Institute podcast, featuring talks from leading thinkers at the Respiratory Compromise Symposium during the 2018 AARC Congress. The mission of the Respiratory Compromise Institute is to prevent suffering and death from respiratory compromise by optimizing its recognition, monitoring and management.
1: It really comes down to education of healthcare providers and I'll, I'll open it up. We'll start at Jeff and kind of work back and see uh, kind of uh, what people think in regards to education of health care providers?
0: I think it's a great question. I think it's real and I think Jim in the very start talked about the surviving sepsis campaign. Uh, that was all built around Lilly's efforts because they had a drug Zygris that never made it really for a prolonged time on the market. But through their education efforts about sepsis, uh, protocolizing care, instituting care earlier, educating people to the recognition, they change the control group mortality dramatically. Uh, Your point is right on. If we don't educate people who care for sleep apneic patients for the risks that they carry with them as it relates to sedatives, narcotics, if we put monitors in place that people don't understand when they're getting false numbers because the heart rate isn't the same on the pulse oximeter or the EKG, they'll misinterpret the information and either apply therapy or not apply therapy inappropriately, so education is key to anything we do.
1: Yeah, one of the things that impressed me <coughs> about the Surviving Sepsis Campaign was what was called uh, the goal-directed therapy. Uh, essentially, it was an algorithm. It said do step one, then do step two, step three, and I think this is the kind of education we need, uh, that there's an algorithm that says here's what you do uh, for this problem, and then you uh, follow up with, with step th- two, three, four, and so forth. So I think this is really what we'll be developing, I think, over the next, uh, hopefully, next year or two. Uh, these kinds of algorithms that will that then we need to promulgate this around the country and around the world. Uh, but that's what the Respiratory Institute, uh, Care, uh, Compromise Institute, is all about.
2: So I have two comments. Number one, um, I firmly believe in education. I just, unfortunately, I'm not convinced we've got an evidence base that supports uh, clear cut educational goals. Uh, again, who are these patients? Um, And what are the right tools to use to evaluate them and put them in various risk categories? Um, It's all well and good to want to educate, but we better make sure our content uh, is accurate and evidence-based. A second point to make is in the monitoring field, uh, I touched on this in my presentation, I'll repeat it here because I find it uh, incredibly, uh, what, insightful about the way medicine is practiced, is the pulse oximeter. The world is convinced that the pulse oximeter is out there as a very effective monitor. Um, I think if you walk down the halls of Duke Hospital for sure, and I suspect other hospitals as well, probably at least three quarters of them uh, are behind closed doors uh, are on the bed uh, post uh, and uh, being totally ignored. So if we're going to develop better monitoring strategies, it's not just the technology that's going to be important. It's making sure that the technology is being uh, 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 utilized properly and is readily uh, available. Um, like I said, a pulse oximeter behind a closed door doesn't do anybody any good. The one
1: comment I would like to make is multidisciplinary. I mean, I think we understand that it needs to be an approach that is not just pulmonary doctors, anesthesia doctors. We need to get out the message, and that certainly includes respiratory therapists, who I look upon as really the first line uh, in in a lot of this. I I think that's a very good point, and that's one of the problems with claims data. There is no specific code, for example, for high-flow nasal cannula. So you can't use claims data, and even in regards to non-invasive we used non-invasive and then excluded sleep apnea, but that is probably not a great tool. Very well taken. And that's why I think that these Medicare data sets are, are hypothesis-generating. We need to get to the next step. And I think, you know, step one is retrospective, and then step two is prospective.
2: Yeah, uh, Bob, you're absolutely right. Um, <clears throat> there are a lot of things that need to be studied to characterize these patients better. And one of the nice things about a, an electronic health record that encompasses a whole system uh, and has been in existence for five years is, it, it's not easy sometimes, but the data are there if you can get the right programmer uh, to ask the right questions of the database. But it's, 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 it's not a simple uh, go in, punch a button, how much high flow are we using, and you get an answer. It's, it, it, it's it's trickier than that.
1: Quality indicator for operative care is the percentage of acute respiratory failure. So many surgeons are very reluctant to use that code. So that, that really speaks to why we need to get to the next step. The one thought I had as Neil was speaking is, so many of us are on EPIC EMRs. If we can come up with some algorithms that are basic that we can move forward, our hope is to generalize this, that we can then start to get bigger data sets and we can start to compare. And, you know, I think the the work that Duke is doing is amazing because they are trying to kind of cull out of that data what we need. And and then we can even generalize further because, I mean, all of us are on or a lot of us are on electronic medical records that are similar. I mean, the problem is you can mix retrospective data sets. Uh, so what Steve was alluding to, there are laboratory data sets where you can cross them. The problem is I think at a certain point you get further and further removed from possible reality. And I mean, we didn't do it, and I'll ask Sid if he thinks there... I don't think there's going to be value. And I mean, I think, I think we've done what we can with the retrospective data set. We want to get it published, we want to get it out there, but I think the next steps are really prospective clinical reviews, and, and then, then uh, uh, I'm sorry, retrospective clinical reviews, then prospective clinical reviews, not just data sets. I, I think we want to get the respiratory therapy community engaged both locally and nationally. And I think that's a very important point, that if you think about the commonality uh, between uh jeff taking care of a post-operative patient in pacu who has respiratory problems and uh us taking care of medical patients in the intensive care unit or floor patients with COPD. What's the commonality? It's the respiratory therapist. So I I think what we want is, and that's why we're here, we want engagement uh, once again at the local level and then hopefully uh, nationally as well. I think that's a very uh, important point. I mean, I think we all need to do a better job. If we can kind of internationalize this, it would even be better. Other comments, questions? If there's no more questions, we'll be available up here, and I really do wanna thank everybody for their attention.
0: Thanks. Thanks for listening to this Respiratory Compromise Institute podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, visit respiratorycompromise.org for more information on research, education, and prevention.